Tale of the Manticore. Bonus material. A chat with Simon J. Williams of Legend of the Bones. What follows over the next half hour or so is not an episode of Tale of the Manticore, and it will not take the place of a usual episode. It's just bonus content. You know, I usually leave the interviewing to folks who do it far better than I can, but every now and then I just can't resist the urge to talk behind the scenes with someone who does something in the same vein as my own show. Simon and I chat fairly regularly, and one day I asked if he'd mind if I hit record. He said okay, so that's what we did. Here's a slightly edited down version of one of our conversations. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, this is a special bonus edition of Tale of the Manticore, and I've got with me my good friend Simon J. Williams, the creator of the amazing Legend of the Bones podcast. Welcome to the show, Simon. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, And thank you for that very kind intro. Uh, For any listeners that don't know about Legend of the Bones, uh, do you want to give your elevator pitch? So uh, I guess you could say that Legend of the Bones is a kind of hybrid dark fantasy audio drama driven by old school Dungeons and Dragons rules. BX basically and yeah that's that's kind of it really. Sounds good there's a bit of a scene growing up around this whole idea of procedural stories using OSR models and uh, I'm finding it really really exciting actually. I'm always uh, curious to see what's coming out next and how is it going to change the formula just a little bit Uh, and I feel like we're all uh, doing something a little bit different for example and we may as well get into it right now uh, you're using a kind of a d6 oracle to determine some of your probability questions. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like how you came across that, why you've chosen to do it that way? Um, well, whatever comes to your mind. Yeah, um, I think I came across it um, in Yum DM's D12 monthly zine. Basically, the Oracle is a simple, uh, you know, yes and, yes but, yes, no and, no but, no Oracle. So basically what I do is when I when I come to a point in the show where something needs to happen or maybe an NPC arrives on the scene and I want to determine their motivation or something that might happen, I turn to the Oracle because that prevents me from just writing a drama and, and it creates that procedurally driven piece. I mean, I do, I do have plot arcs and and um, situations and and locations kind of set up that the party can can go and explore but i often use the oracle to kind of determine whether they do that if it's not clearly logical what they would do for example uh, i also use use the oracle to determine what the antagonists are doing so yeah will will they take some action against the party or will they try and do x or y um the oracle helps me do that and for me it keeps it really fresh for me as both player and GM because you know, you have to wear those two hats simultaneously it, it means it's always exciting and and I don't know what's going to happen and that's that's really interesting because then I just have to interpret what, whatever the dice roll says do you ever um do you ever use it to throw a monkey wrench into your own works because as we're as we're doing the show I don't ever know whether to call it playing or writing but whatever that verb is uh, when we're making the show uh, for me anyway uh, I often have an idea of what might happen but then I think uh, sometimes oh maybe I should randomize it just just to make it difficult on myself and to force Uh, my brain to, you know, uh, zig when it wants to zag. Do you ever do that to yourself or do you use it mostly for situations where you just don't know? I I use it mainly for the latter. So if I don't know or 
or I don't mind where, where it's going to go, or I'm quite open to it being one way or the other. Right. Um, inevitably, even through that method, it throws in curveballs that I don't expect. There was one one situation several episodes back where uh, I had a, I had a random NPC generated through a, a random role on a table, and the 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 oracle helped me determine who that was, and therefore something then happened to the party as a result of those roles which I hadn't intended and uh, would not have occurred to me if I hadn't used the oracle right so uh, it does throw curveballs in but I don't think to myself I want a curveball I'm just going to randomly ask a question I don't generally do that I normally do it when there's a kind of a pivot point in the story uh, that requires some determination about which it could go either way mm-hmm. and and that's when I use the oracle yeah, actually, whenever I'm listening to your show and that comes up, it's always an exciting moment because, uh, again, it just really adds that dose of chaos to the story. It's like really could go anywhere. Uh, sometimes if I encounter a similar situation, I'll do like a high-low roll with a usually a D20, but then typically if it's towards the 20, I'll kind of lean in towards a yes and, and if it's towards a one, I might lean towards a no and. I, I do like that uh, that mechanic, and I think it works really well for your show. Yeah, I, I use the high low as well as well, but I normally use that if I, I just need a, a straight yes or no, or it's one thing or the other. Um, so high low does work well as well, um, but I, I don't I don't generally put nuance in the high low role. But yeah, the, I like the oracle as well because sometimes yeah I could go through most of a show without having rolled many dice. And, um, and, and I know you, you come across this issue as well. Uh, and that's, some, that's often when I turn to the Oracle as well. Is, you know, if there's no any action potentially going to come up in that one episode, I might turn to the Oracle to determine something that's going to happen uh, that might then set up something for the next episode or the next part of the story. So yeah, I use it that way as well. Because you, know, you have to roll the dice. You have to roll the dice at least once every show. Otherwise, otherwise I'm just you know, writing a novel. Right. I'm, la- I'm laughing because uh, my most recent episode, I, I put something in there. How like, oh, gee, I, I kind of almost went through an episode without rolling the dice. I'm going to roll them now uh, just to change things up. And um, some some episodes get uh, more or less feedback from listeners, but I did receive some gentle ribbing from listeners for that one. <laughs> so I guess it matters. Yeah. Uh, but of course, yeah, we uh, we have to keep rolling the dice. So that otherwise, we are making a novel, aren't we? Indeed. Indeed. And it, you know, it, I think it's fundamentally important that it that it is part game. Yeah. Um, and, and the whole point about the drama aspect of it, the story aspect of it, is that it's procedurally driven. Yeah, exactly. And and as soon as you lose that aspect, then it, it ceases to be the thing that I'm trying to create. I know. Sometimes it feels enough like a novel or audio drama that all of the Chekhov's guns that we leave littered in our wake, it, it feels like, oh, those should be resolved. I mean, in a movie, those would be resolved. But of course, we're not making a screenplay and we're not making a novel. But sometimes it does feel enough like we are that those unresolved characters and plot threads and whatnot... They do feel like uh, like a very frayed carpet <laughs> uh, trailing out behind us in a way, uh, and, and I do feel like ah, oh, it, it feels untidy. But but then again, that untidiness—I mean, it's a feature, not a bug. I guess in the end. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I think there's a couple of things for me on that. Which is one, you know, there's a possibility that those those threads or those Chekhov gums may come back in somewhere far far down the line. You know that. I don't even know about yet. Uh-huh. You know, an unresolved NPC might suddenly turn up because it kind of makes sense for that to happen. Yeah. But also, it's kind of more realistic for me, more grounded that you know, the w- life isn't tidy. 
you know, life isn't like a Hollywood movie where things get nicely resolved and tied in. Right. It's funny because I often, uh, uh, when I'm watching a movie with my wife, she says to me, because um, I, I don't like happy endings in movies, I like them to be, you know, dark and bitter and, and it, you know, everything falls apart at the end. Whereas my wife likes a nice happy ending. And and um, I'm like, well, that's not, re- that's not real. You know, like life's... Life is pain. <laughs> anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Indeed, indeed. And uh, prizes to anyone who got that movie, uh, movie Easter egg there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, in my real life, I'm uh, I'm an English teacher uh, sometimes. Anyway, and often if I'm teaching like story structure to my students, uh, I'll tell them that there's basically two kinds of stories. There's uh, comedies and tragedies, and the comedies are when good things eventually happen to good people after hardship, and the tragedies are when bad things happen to bad people, but that they all have the one thing in common where there is justice. You know, justice is done. And I say that's why we're attracted to these stories, because justice happens in stories that doesn't happen in real life. And it's something about human nature that wants that justice. Now, having said all that, we're making something that does not have that. We're making the thing that's closer to real life. And so it kind of is a head scratcher to me why I am drawn to it when I preach in my professional life that we ha- we are drawn to stories because of that resolution, that karmic resolution that doesn't happen enough in reality. It does always happen in stories. So uh, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think... I think- Within there's that thing, isn't there? When you know all, all stories tend to have uh, something about man struggling against himself, man struggling against man, and man struggling against nature. The kind of three kind of mm-hmm. types of conflicts that you can have in in a story. And most most novels and and films will tend to focus on one of those things. Yeah, um, they, they may have aspects of others, but they they tend to focus in on, on one. And I think with this mode of procedurally driven storytelling, uh-huh. you have much more scope to explore all of those three different conflict devices or conceits within the emergent story that comes and and i find that some some episodes or for for maybe you know two or three episodes the emergent story will, will focus around maybe just one of the party members right or about an external threat or or something and or, or it's a trek across the wilderness or within a dungeon or and so i find that mm-hmm. i'm exploring those conflict those different ideas of conflict in different parts of the story at different times and i find that interesting i think that's partly why i'm drawn to it because it has that full scope of, of conflict that you can experience but i also think that even though it is closer to real life in that you have all these chuck of guns and loose threads hanging around there's still an aspect of you have a party uh-huh. they are your protagonists and as a player you want them to win and as a GM, I want them to win as well. You know, like in my life table, I want my players to succeed. I want them to win. So there's something there that draws you to that because they are overcoming challenges. They're, they're struggling against yes. different types of adversity and we're, we're willing them on. We build this empathy with our characters and we start to um, identify with them and they become more and more real to us as time goes on. Just like you're exploring meeting new people in your real life, you're exploring these new individuals and, and meeting them and understanding their character and their personalities, even though they're just you know a bunch of stats on a page, they start to breathe life of their own, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, it really is. It's it's a kind of magic that happens. Uh, okay, I'm going to jump to uh, this is a this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I'm going to jump to a new one. Does creating Legend of the Bones influence your table game? You still have a table game as well, right? I do. So, so does the creation uh, affect the way you do things, either as a player or a GM? 
Absolutely. I am a forever GM. <laughs> so so I, I've been running a live table for nearly five years, actually. Uh, one single continuous campaign over five years. Uh, we play we play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which is, which is kind of my first love. And when I started Legend of the Bones, I didn't know it at the time. I started it because I wanted something just for me. I was feeling a little bit of burnout from being the forever GM. And... When you GM for other people, I always want to please mm-hmm. my table. I want to please the players, and I want I, I want to create something that's enjoyable and fun, and everyone has a good time. Yeah, and I kind of feel very responsible for that. And I know that's kind of you know that's not true. Everyone's responsible for their own fun, but I'm quite a giver, so I kind of I feel that quite deeply. Um, so I, I was at the point where I really wanted something just for myself, and I never really explored world building particularly so it was another opportunity to do that but what i found was that through the solo play in legend of the bones i started to do things which i hadn't really done as a gm at my live table Mm -hmm. but i started to introduce those things yeah and it made my live table games more rich for it so i started using a lot more random tables i started using the oracle actually sometimes rather than me adjudicating a decision i said right i'm going to leave this to the oracle you know i don't know what's going to happen here and we're going to roll with it yeah and I think that that made it much more interesting for me as a GM at the live table. And I think it kind of rescued it for me, actually, because it, it breathed new life into it for me. It gave me a new sense of, of purpose with it, which I probably wouldn't have got if I hadn't started the show. So, it, yeah, it's absolutely influenced what I do at the live table. Um, probably not vice versa, actually. Um, I, I bring very little from my live table into the show, other than there's a few there's a few things. I mean, last episode I mentioned that I use tattoos a lot in my live table to uh, mark clandestine factions, uh-huh. uh, and I've started to bring that into in, into Legend of the Bones. So there's little bits that kind of fall, fall in and come into the show, but uh, it's mainly the other way around, absolutely. Obviously in the show, there's a pretty strong narrative that holds together and has got continuity uh, and probably like I do you would kind of agonize over am I obeying my own rules and my own lore and am I getting it right in a table game I kind of let that go a bit like really loose and I'm not trying to make it as cohesive like there there is an arc and there's a story but it's uh, very much like oh a little bit of this and then a little bit of that and then let's try this and uh it's okay if it's the, there's a lot of variance between sessions, whereas the the podcast ends up being a more homogeneously told story or a, a slightly tighter story, I guess. Uh, do you find that as well, that your table game is uh, a bit more like, um, I don't know, broader in its, I'm not sure exactly what the words are. Erratic would be the word for mine. I tend to have, in my, in my table game, I, have, I do have a, a broad arc. And I have a kind of campaign outline, but it is quite sandboxy, mm-hmm. so the players can can go and do other stuff. They tend to not to. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, I was talking to Che from Roleplay Rescue about this um, just a couple of weeks ago about how how much agency the players really want, um, and in my experience, not as much as you think they want. Um, but um, so whilst I present a sandbox, there's they, they tend to kind of follow the breadcrumbs I, I, I lay down for them. And within the show, like you, I I I have an absolute arc. I didn't start out intending that you know I, I started out you know, I put my, my characters into a shipwreck scene mm. I needed a, a device by which I could introduce the fourth character which was my mage Valen um, and I happened to have this idea that the, you know, the tower that he and his master lived in had been attacked by some religious zealots hell-bent on on killing mages right just kind of came with it came up with it off the cuff and that's now kind of developed into the main arc of of the show uh, and 
what I found myself doing is that as events happened in the show, I'd go back to the Oracle and say, is this something to do with what this nasty group of of religious zealots are doing and it's surprising how many times the dice said yes and it was almost like they know they know they, they've got a story of their own to tell they know <laughs> so I just I just went with it and, and, and because I went with it it started to kind of build its own traction and, and started to go somewhere and so I've started to kind of I, I have a, a very very faint idea about where where it might end but I don't I, I'm not rigidly sticking to it because again I don't want it to be a railroad mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to railroad myself in this. But what I do do is say, look, you know, this bad group of people over here are doing this stuff. Yeah. The players, at least one of the, the player characters, has a motivation to go after them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so long as he's alive, because of course, you know, <laughs> like, anything could happen, um, then the party as a whole has a motivation to, to go with him and pursue pursue the bad guys. And I will do whatever is logical. What would the what would the characters do? And what would I do if I was a player? Would I would I follow those breadcrumbs? Would I feel compelled to do that? Mm-hmm. But also, you know, if this was a, a real life scenario, what would the logical thing for this group of people, knowing their personalities, knowing their motivations, what would be the logical thing that they would do? Would they continue to follow this arc, this trail of breadcrumbs that I'm laying out before them? Um, and so far, the answer has been yes, but that could change. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that's a huge difference. I think in my table game, the players, like, we're there to play a game, uh, and they don't need necessarily uh, a constant strong motivation with push factors and pull factors. Sometimes it's enough just to say, like, you know, there's a, a rumor of a dungeon nearby. Oh, we'll go there. Where, of course, like, in the podcast that we make, that wouldn't, it just wouldn't feel like it made sense. Like, who would do that? <laughs> Especially once they made their money, they'd, like, get out of there and run. They wouldn't go back down. Uh, and so, but in a game, of course, that's that's why we're at the table, to play the game and do the dungeon and maybe to clear it out. Or uh, So I do find that in the podcast, that sort of, I guess, a little bit more uh, tendency towards making the story tighter, uh, more realistic, for lack of a better word. Uh, and just, yeah, just bound tighter together, uh, less random. One of the things for my, in my live table game, it sounds like it might be slightly different to what you're doing with your live table, is that... I tend to run mystery games, so I don't do a lot of dungeon crawls. Um, do some wilderness crawls, but but most of it is mystery games, and that's partly because the game that we're playing it really lends itself towards that. It's very urban-based, generally you know, dark, gritty, grimy cities where you've got cultists and politicians and nobles all kind of with their Machiavellian plots going on, and so it lends itself to mysteries. And so I guess my players tend to kind of want to solve the mysteries which is probably why they tend to follow the breadcrumbs but what I'm finding actually is through the solo plays I am introducing more hex crawls and dungeon crawl aspects into my game at the live table I'm finding I, I do struggle with a hex crawl in my live game because I find that it usually means oh here's another combat now I, that's my own failing because I, I could prepare tables that lead to other things but it, it's almost so easy to just have a table of you know, monster encounters, um, that that's kind of where I usually go. Or I'll do a table and I'll make it like four monster encounters and then two other non-monster encounters. But it does seem to be like, okay, here's a hex crawl opportunity. Do we want to just add a, 
a fight scene here because sometimes, yeah, especially at a table game, it's like a fight and then oh, it's another fight and oh, it's another fight that that'll happen. Especially like a hex crawl, a dungeon crawl can do that too, can't it? Yeah. So maybe there's another difference is that the podcast tends to do a lot less of the sort of fight the monster to get the treasure. And if actually come to think of it, treasure is so de-emphasized in my show, it, it really doesn't matter for much at all. Whereas in a live game, often you want that. You want that treasure aspect in there. No, I, I agree. And, 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 and I think it's the same, the same in my show. I, I don't, treasure isn't a big thing. And in fact, actually I made a point of saying that, um, so my, my setting is relatively low magic. Mages are rare and they're scorned and magic items are very rare. So I think you know my party have just got their first magic item and it's like it's really uh-huh. really weak. <laughs> you know, it's it's a re- it's a ring that can cast a single use spell. That's it. You know, and and I've done that intentionally because I, I didn't want the kind of high fantasy. Right. You know, everyone's got a you know plus three sword of ages. That doesn't really kind of do it for me. I prefer more kind of grounded settings where it's a bit more it's a bit more everyman. Uh, you know struggling against uh, yeah. adversity so your ordinary people being dropped into extraordinary circumstances and situations i find that far more interesting yeah yeah the next question is what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to make a new podcast just do it <laughs> i think i think that's the key piece of advice is that you know you can sit around and you can procrastinate about it you can sit around and say oh will it be any good and you can start comparing it to compare what you might be able to create to other podcasts that you like and shows that you like and you know there's always going to be someone out there doing something that's better than your one that's just life you know there's always gonna be someone who's better at something than you just get over it and 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 do it because it's actually really rewarding it's rewarding because you can go back and listen to the thing you've created and go do you know what i made that that's great that's that's something that's there now there was nothing and now there's something and that's I consider myself quite a creative person. I, I kind of feel compelled to create stuff. So doing that makes it really worthwhile and interesting. Secondly, playing solo, I think, is something that everyone should do. It is such a, a rich uh, reservoir of creativity and interest and excitement and exploration. I don't think you can get as much from a table game than you can from solo and that's from someone I love I love playing with my live group I love it they're they're great but there's something about playing solo which is far richer and until you've experienced it you don't really realize what a rich well a deep well that can give you I would agree 100% now would you do a solo game if it was never to be recorded released etc just for you I would but I would record it in some way now uh, that could be a, a written transcript um, and, and typically when I when I'm playing stroke writing I'm doing them both simultaneously right. so I'm sat at my computer I'm, I'm writing a bit of narrative I roll some dice I write a bit more that kind of stuff so yeah. so it's kind of one of the same thing in that sense recording it as a transcript yeah, um, and you know, write the dialogue I, and I lay it out much like a, you'd read a play in Shakespeare you know kind of you know name and then what they say So so at the very least I would do that and if I have the equipment, as I do, I would probably record it even if I wasn't going to release it because I, I get a lot of pleasure from listening back to what I've created uh, and and enjoying it all over again. I can repeatedly enjoy what I play through. Much like you, know, you re-watch your favourite movie or you, you, know, you re-read your favourite books yeah. over and over because they give you pleasure to do so. Experiencing the game again 
through the medium of listening it, to it as a podcast is, is a deep pleasure for me. Absolutely agree. And actually, to add on to that, something that I've, I've kind of wondered is what, the way we make the show, and I think that our methodology is, is pretty similar. Um, you know, you're, you kind of write slash play it, and then probably a, a round of editing, and then you record it, and then you mix it, and then you listen back to make sure that it's good, and then maybe there's another round of mixing in there. And by the time it's released, you've heard every episode five, six, maybe seven or eight times. Yeah. And in a sense, we're studying our own material. And I, I think that if I didn't do that, I don't think I would have such a handle on the characters in the story. And I, I think I would let things slip through the cracks. I might miss very obvious threads, uh, but it's that reiteration that happens by necessity to make the show that allows, I think, for a certain level of, of depth and richness and uh, continuity and completeness, I don't think I could do it otherwise. It, it makes me wonder, when people are writing a, a novel, do they reread and reread and reread and reread? Yeah. I, I kind of feel like uh, if I was to try that, I would have to reread and reread to get, to get that same kind of control over my own story. Because my, my brain just isn't big enough to hold it all on the first iteration but no way I had to, you're almost studying it by the exposures yeah and, and and I don't know about you but I'm I'm quite a perfectionist with it as well so um, you know I, I, I will go back and edit you know yeah. a word or a sentence which for most people they wouldn't even notice it in the show they wouldn't notice it but but for me if it's not phrased the way I want it phrased or you know or I find I've used the word said too many times rather than kind of, you know, a different way of, you know, uh, you know, I, I have to go back and change it. I, I can't, cause it's like a, because when I listen back to it, that's the thing I can hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate. Uh-huh. Nothing, <laughs> it's that, that mistake, that little thing that bothers me will ruin it for me. So I have to go back and do it. And, and you know, I, I know, I guess the other thing as well is that you, in doing so, as you say, you, you become very familiar with your story and all the little threads and all those kind of things and the nuances, the t- those little subtle nuances that as the writer, player, producer, you put in there because it pleases you to do so. Yeah. No one else is going to notice it. Yeah. And, and, and also, I, I think to myself, you know, surely people, I, I sometimes forget that people won't be living and breathing this the way I am. Right. And therefore, you know, I might mention something in an episode that re- relates to something that went, happened 10 episodes previously thinking oh I'd be really clever here you know, I'm making that little link there and aren't the listeners going to love that of course they're not going to remember it you know unless they're binging my show which some people may well do but if they're not doing that they're not going to pick up on those subtle differences but but I have to do it anyway because ultimately first and foremost I'm doing it for me right okay final question let us spread a little bit of love and uh, maybe recommend two or three other uh, things that could be podcasts could be YouTube channels or um uh, anything, anything uh, that we want to kind of shine a light on uh, that we think maybe listeners of ours uh, might enjoy. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, is it a new podcast in in this same kind of genre of storytelling uh, and game uh, called Stories from the First Watch by a guy called Robin Sampson. Robin has been listening to my show since the beginning and he he, did, he was actually my first voice actor on my show and he's he's decided to do his own own show and he's got about three, I think he's got three episodes out at the moment I think his fourth one's about to land soon and he's made a great start with him and uh, if, you, if you like what I do in Legend of the Bones and what you do in Tale of the Manticore then, then Robin's show Stories from the First Watch is definitely one to listen to. Another show that I've started listening to, but it's very new again, it's called A Game of One's Own. It's uh, produced by a lady called 
Maddie Searle. And what Maddie's doing is she's basically picking up games that are designed to be played either solo or, or co-op and she's playing them through in a couple of episodes so it's not a con- continuous story thing uh, not always fantasy stuff um, the first um, couple of episodes were to do with being stuck in a log cabin in Swiss Alps or, Alps or something she did a really great job of the kind of narrative elements it was really well delivered yeah. very well produced uh, and just interesting and different so so that's not, that's one uh, and, and finally and I'm going to have to shout out Roleplay Rescue of course Roleplay Rescue is it's, it's a must listen for me and what Che does with that show he just gets me thinking every time every time I listen to the show doesn't matter what the subject is he's talking about and if, if, right. if people aren't familiar with Che's show uh, Che's mission if you like is to help the the lapsed gamer come back to the table mm. uh, and for those of us who maybe have, have, have lost our way or, or need a bit of reinvigoration as well Che's show explores all those kind of different dimensions about how to get back to the table how to enjoy your game how to run the best game you can you can run but he also he, he comes at it from a very personal perspective and I love that there's lots of shows out there that can give you advice about being a, a better GM or a better this or a better that and that's great but what I love about Che's show is that it's absolutely from the heart and he's a lovely guy to boot as well so absolutely yeah when I came back when I came back to RPGs I, I stumbled upon his show somehow and it was uh, I had zero friends that were into RPGs when I came back to the hobby after being away for a couple of decades and when I found Che's podcast, it, it was like it was designed for me. It was like, I am that lapsed gamer wanting to come back to the table. And to have Che's voice in my ear was actually really meaningful. It, it, yeah, it, like you say, a must listen. Absolutely. Uh, let me throw out some other ideas. Uh, Errant Adventures. Steve Morrison is a brilliant storyteller, and he often uses, uh, not only, but often uses uh, the Ironsworn and uh, Starforge systems. Uh, Sean Tompkins uh, models of uh, kind of Oracle-driven solo stuff. And um, he, he does a great job, and he switches it up quite often, too. So he'll he'll carry an arc forward for a few months, and then he'll do something uh, quite different. So um, there's a great variety with what Steve is doing. I got to shout out the Iron Realm every time, because that was really the, the one that inspired me to uh, to make my show. And um, with certainly without the Iron Realm, uh, I wouldn't have a podcast. And I think the, the Iron Realm, as you say, was was the first in this kind of... I think it's the first. Uh, I think he basically invented the thing. Yeah. Um, and it's a great show. It's a great show. And, and actually, he has a very unique USP, if you like, uh, which is the whole you can play along as well with the podcast. You're right. He's a kind of a pioneer in two ways, uh, as the sort of play-along podcast. And, as far as I can tell, he kind of invented this hybrid game slash audio drama uh, thing that that obviously we spend a lot of hours uh, doing. So a uh, big thanks to Abel. Uh, I've also got to mention the incredible The Lone Adventurer podcast, which has insane production values. And also uh, another relative newcomer, Echoes of Eshetan, which uses the Degenesis system and is in the grim, dark, post-apocalyptic genre. Very, very good. Uh, finally, the Keep on the Borderlands webcomic, which is procedurally generated and I think is also probably the first of its kind. Simon, thank you so much for the chat. And uh, we should do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks once again to Simon for joining me on this show. I'd recommend anyone who isn't already listening to his show or any of the others mentioned here to check them out. I recently posted a list on my blog under the heading, It's Kind of a Scene. You'll need to scroll down a little and find the May 19th entry. There, you'll find links to all the shows mentioned in this conversation and a few others. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat, and even more, I hope you'll find a new show to dig into. The next episode of Tale of the Manticore is coming up in just a few days. Until then.